This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news, today's talk. 640 Toronto. Parking is going to cost more for you in Toronto if you get a ticket. Fines are going up and they're already up as of midnight last night, today, for the last six hours to more than double what it previously was. If your meter ran out, if you put a car on the street, didn't even bother with the meter, you thought, I'm only going to be 15 minutes and it turns into 35 Stick it on your windshield on the way back. We all know that feeling, but it's more than it used to be today. Is that Does that mean people are still going to have the same behavior? Maybe for some people, $75, which is now the fine, um, is going to be enough of a reason to load that Green P app on your phone or put the credit card in the meter. There's very few that are coins anymore, but I've come across a couple and I'm like, are you serious? Is this 1978? You think I'm carrying coins around? $30 will go to $75. And that's enough for me to, for it to make a big difference. Um, but the, the lunacy of the previous policy that a few counselors pointed out in October as they talked, and this is one of those, a small thing, I suppose, but how two years ago people weren't saying, guys, gather around, city counselors. You do realize that uh, vendors and parking lots are charging $40 and $50 for big events. Why would we have a ticket that's only $30? You're just going to leave the car on the street outside of, I don't know, name your big event. Massey Hall, you're taking your kids to the aquarium. Scotiabank for anything that's big. Like Scotiabank's full, like something like 220 nights of the year. There's stuff going on at Scotiabank Arena. From the two main tenants, the Leafs and the Raptors, to concerts, to figure skating. Disney on ice. Doesn't matter. They're just going to leave their car there and say, give me the 30 bucks. I'll take it. Can't find a spot, but I want a spot where I can walk. I'm, I'm walking with my kids. You ever try and walk with seven-year-olds and four-year-olds? They're not walking a kilometer and a half with you. They don't. Those are long walks from Union Station even to a Blue Jays game when your kids are like three, four, five years old. And the strollers, oh, I don't want to relive that. I'm not ready to relive that if, ever as a grandparent even. Give me 20 years. 25 years before that happens again. But it's going up to $75, um, and it only makes sense. Now, there's a big question for the city here. It is a revenue maker. We talk about revenue tools for the city of Toronto, and we ask a very valid, honest question. Will there be more revenue or less revenue because you've jacked the price up? There has to be a bit more, but the question is how much? Um, there were 106250 Uh, tickets in 2022 for illegal parking in city-run parking lots. All you need to do is the math to understand that um, that is going to get you into the 10s, 11s, 12s of millions of dollars. 12, 13 million dollars a year is not ridiculous for revenue for the city to bring in for parking. That's not all profit. You're paying for cars to go out. You're paying for the, uh, uh, the meter men and women, if you will, to hand out those tickets. Nobody likes seeing those cars driving around, but they've got a job to do at the end of the day. Uh, So more on that, certainly as the morning continues, but to let you know, almost as a consumer service, uh, you get a ticket today. uh, You're in for a little bit, a little bit of sticker shock in terms of uh, what you're going to get compared to what it used to be. Uh, We'll get to some of these election results a little later on in the morning, but just to reset, Parthi Candevel is the new city councillor from Scarborough Southwest. He won the municipal by-election. And the Green Party of Ontario, if you're waking up, that's the shocker of the two for sure, won their second seat in the provincial legislature. Um, And I know there were people in the NDP worried about the Greens last night 
but I'm not sure they anticipated the Greens winning almost half the votes. Uh, Ashlyn Clancy for Kitchener won almost 50% of the vote. She's in the 44-45% range. She's a city councilor. So maybe she's a great Kitchener city councilor. How would I know? But a phenomenal result for the Greens, and she'll sit with Mike Schreiner. And I don't know what that says about either the NDP or the Liberals. By the way, though the Conservatives didn't win, there's a modest winner in Doug Ford and the Conservatives because neither the NDP or Liberals gained any momentum from getting drummed by the Green Party in a city like Kitchener. No way. There's no no, uh, moral victory you can claim if you're Mart Stiles and the New Democrats or the Liberals when you lose that seat that Laura May Lindo has held since 2018. Uh, I mentioned this on Twitter yesterday, and it got a lot of attention, this COP28 conference that is transpiring in uh, the United Arab Emirates. And uh, of at this conference, they're going to discuss better ways to preserve the environment. But I mentioned this on the show, I think once or twice yesterday, but let's hammer it home today. How many Canadians, and I'll give you that uh, requisite exciting dead air for about four seconds here. How many Canadians do you think are at COP28 in Dubai? How many? You're way short. Whatever your guess was, Canadians. These are government officials, former governor, government officials, uh, environmental activists, envir- people are, that are concerned that are more moderate about the environment. 800 is the answer. 800 Canadians are attending COP28 in Dubai, including, as someone told me, and here comes that Kitchener word again, the mayor of Kitchener needs to be at COP28 in Dubai. I kid you not. What on earth? How will we save the planet if the mayor of Kitchener, Barry Bervanovich, is not in Dubai taking a uh, taxpayer-funded flight over to Dubai using all that carbon footprint, checking into highly air-conditioned hotels, because in Dubai this morning, it's uh, scalding hot. It always is. You might remember around this time of year, the World Cup last year was being held in Qatar, and they held it there in November because the temperature was only like 33 Celsius instead of 45 Celsius. So um, it's a, it's an it's a absolute conference of excess, and the mayor of Kitchener is there. Does that come out of Kitchener taxpayers? Is that a are the federal government paying for the mayor of Kitchener to be there? Either way, it's really, really something. And I'll give you the data that I uh, the stat that I gave you on Twitter on Greg Brady To one round trip flight from Ottawa to Dubai generates almost two thousand kilograms of CO two. There's eighty seven countries in the world where the average person produces less CO two in a year than this one trip. I cannot make sense of this. I can't figure this out. This is climate change is real. Climate change needs solutions. But this is almost a troll on the part of the people in Dubai allowing this conference here. What do, what's important in Dubai? Oil, fossil fuels. By the way, things that the developing world does need to build infrastructure, to build uh, indoor plumbing, to build buildings. They need plastics. You'll never make plastics without oils. There's so many contradictions with this, but I thought you'd find it interesting that the mayor of Kitchener needs to be at the, there's probably other mayors needs to be at this conference. He's one and maybe he's got a delegation of five. Can he be on zoom? We all got told how dangerous it is to come to work and not to be on zoom five, uh, three years ago, 
but uh, it's cool to you know push the environment and uh, and fly on a jet to Dubai to meet. Mayor of Kitchener ain't going to turn global warming around in the next five days, but he there anyway. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news. Today's talk. 640 Toronto. Uh, last night, uh, a tremendous victory, a resounding message sent by the voters of Kitchener Centre. And now uh, our next guest will have a partner, not necessarily in crime, in Queen's Park. He'll uh, sit uh, with a new member of the Green Party from a Kitchener Centre uh, by-election win last night. He's the party leader. He is Mike Schreiner. It's great to have you on. Hey, Greg, it's always a pleasure. What a result last night. And uh, and I know you'll uh, you'll lay all the credit uh, back down uh, to your uh, your new MPP, but 48 percent uh, Kitchener Center voters showed up resoundingly so uh, for Ashlyn Clancy. Yeah, I mean, this is a great victory for Kitchener Center. Ashlyn Clancy is going to be a fantastic MPP, be a strong voice for them at Queen's Park. And I think it also just shows the momentum that's growing for the Green Party's people-centered politics. We heard over and over from voters that they really appreciate Mike Morris at the federal level, who's the Green MP here in Kitchener Center, as well as my approach to politics. That you know what, we put people ahead of party. And that really resonated with folks here. And I think this election also sends a strong message to every political party that housing has to be built. We ran on a campaign that said yes in my backyard um, with a plan to say, let's build more homes that ordinary people can afford in the communities they know and love without paving over farmland in the Greenbelt. That certainly resonated here. And I think this is also going to re-energize the climate movement as well. Well, I definitely want to talk about that. Is it a message that Kitchener Center's vote uh, sent to either the NDP or the Liberals? Let's be honest. If you want to grow your base of seats, of course, there's Doug Ford's seats, but you're looking at those two parties as well. You just picked off an NBC stronghold last night. Well, yeah, we certainly did. And, you know, in the last election, Greg, we almost picked up a conservative stronghold. We came very close in Perry Sal Muskoka. And I think, again, the, the momentum for the Green Party's people-centered approach to politics is really growing. And the thing we heard at the door over and over again, and I tell you what, Greg, the Ashlyn and her team, they've been knocking on doors for eight months, mm. listening to people, bringing their voice to the forefront in this campaign and affordability, especially housing affordability, was the number one issue. The Ontario Greens, over two and a half years ago, put forward a housing plan that you know a number of people have called a masterclass plan in delivering the solutions that we need. I know Ashlyn is very eager to get to Queen's Park and start pushing that mm-hmm. plan forward, especially with some private members' bills that I already have on the order paper. And I did see a lot of chatter, uh, especially on social media last night, where people saying, This is a message to every political party in this province that we have to start building homes that people can afford in the communities they know and love. People will also um, ask if if your party and you as a leader, Mike, can can you be conciliatory? Can you give to get? We just saw that. I think you saw that in the city this week with the mayor, Olivia Chow, who kind of acquiesced on some campaign promises. But I don't think anyone's saying uh, I think she's got supporters that feel that she should have fought harder for certain things. But you know what politics is. There has to be a middle ground where you do kind of, you know, um, give up some things to get some things. Can the Green Party do that sometimes? Because you do have a reputation, and I'm not saying it's fair, of it's aggressive, it's the environment or else. Can you give and give and take with the best of them is what I'm asking. Oh, absolutely, Greg. I mean, I think I've earned a reputation at Queen's Park 
as being the kind of politician who can work across party lines to get things done for people. And an example that we brought up a number of times here in Kitchener Center was, you know, the first bill I ever passed was co-sponsored with a member of the Conservative Party to help electric vehicle drivers. And I remember some of the other opposition parties really giving me a rough time and hammering me for working with the Conservatives on that particular bill. But we used it as an example to voters here in Kitchener Center that, hey, you know what, Greens will hold the Ford government accountable and we'll be a strong voice in fighting back against the parts of the Ford Mm. agenda we don't agree with. But when we have an opportunity to work with the conservatives on something we do agree on Mm. that's going to make life better for people, we'll absolutely do that. And that message resonated. Um, I want to ask you about uh, COP28. I'm sorry. I find it the height of uh, nutso stuff to be sending 800 Canadians to this particular conference, some of which are flying on private jets. They're leaving a massive carbon footprint. I'm going to ask you, do you is that too big a number of Canadians? We've got the mayor of Kitchener there who, you know, there's mayors of smaller Ontario towns that are there. I, I think that's that's crazy. Am I wrong? Well, you know what, Greg, it's it's an important um, moment to bring people together to talk about addressing the biggest crisis of our generation. But it can be a bit over the top, especially when people are traveling in private jets, which I I think is just wrong. And that's why I've always appreciated somebody like Elizabeth May, who has been to every cop, but always flies coach when she has to and ensures that, you know, she's traveling by train and things like that when she gets there. Uh, Because if we're going to address the climate crisis, we need all levels of government. We need countries across the world working together. And we also have to lead by example. But do you think it's in the United Arab Emirates? Do you think the United Arab Emirates takes climate change seriously? Well, you know what? We're going to have to get oil and gas producing countries on board with this green transition. And I can tell you, Greg, for Ontario, a huge economic opportunity to be a leader in the new climate economy. This year, according to Bloomberg, $1.8 trillion is going to be invested in the green transition, most of that in renewable energy. We haven't been investing in renewable energy in Ontario. I want to start attracting those investment dollars to create jobs and prosperity in the province of Ontario while we reduce climate pollution and address people's real affordability concerns. Mike Schreiner is our guest from the Green Party. A couple more on this. I struggle with us telling people in the developing world, stop using fossil fuels. It's in essence telling them you, you, what we have, you can't go after. What we utilize fossil fuels for to create, whether it's you know pipes for our clean water or how we heat our homes or how we cook, we're telling those countries and we're giving them a bit of a, a moral tisk tisk. I struggle with it. If it's fine, you and me in our neighborhood, we can do a ton in a province of 15 million people to reduce our own individual carbon footprints. So can companies. But I'm going to ask you: Do you struggle with telling people and poor people in Africa and Asia prioritize climate change? They they just want to live, don't they? Well, we have to prioritize raising living standards uh, in the developing world. There's no doubt about it, and that needs to be our top priority. But the good news from a climate perspective and an economic prosperity perspective is a lot of these developing countries can actually leapfrog um, the fossil fuel age because the cost of renewable energy has come down so much. I mean, the cost of solar down 90% in the last decade. It is now the cheapest source of electricity generation in the world. 
cost of wind energy down 80% in the last decade. The opportunities we have in building better homes that are more energy efficient that help, can help people save money by saving energy. I would say the role that you know those richer countries like Canada can play is helping poorer countries finance the transition to make the investments they need to generate economic prosperity in the new climate economy. I'd buy that with homes, but the two examples I would bring up, clean drinking water. There's a clear correlation between an improved water source, as in getting water from pipes, and fossil fuel usage. Same with cooking. People die, millions of people die from air pollution because they're cooking with wood or cooking with dung. We could give them access to cheap and reliable fossil fuels to cook and heat their homes, and millions of lives would be saved. And we never talk about that. Well, actually, on the cooking side of things, um, uh, helping them uh, with getting away from wood burning, absolutely, 100% with you on that, Greg. But why not have that be electric cooking powered by the lowest cost source of energy in the world, solar panels? So there are solutions that are going to help people save money, reduce climate pollution, and improve health and quality of life and economic prosperity. And I think a number of these countries need countries like Canada to help support them in financing that transition. I agree. And a lot of that ends up being uh, tech related. And we have to spend a ton yeah. of money. We have to spend billions of dollars on technology. What, where I worry we're losing people, uh, Mike, and you probably hear from people in your writing. I bet you Ashlyn's going to hear from people in her writing about how much they're hurting with a federal carbon tax right now. And of course, I get what the concept of it is, but people are really hurting right now. And it's really hard to tell people we're in a climate emergency when they're they're having to sacrifice things in their own life uh, as a result of the taxes, isn't it? Yeah, well, you know what? People are hurting. There is no doubt about it. But you know what? Let's let's just put a couple facts on the table. Last year, the carbon price rose the price of oil and gas by two cents. Meanwhile, oil and gas companies' profits rose by 18 cents uh, per liter. So Absolutely. we got to hold them accountable. You're right. Those huge excess profits to help finance people being able to address affordability challenges like making their homes uh, more energy efficient so they save money by saving energy, helping people be able to afford an electric vehicle, which costs one-tenth the price of fueling up with gas. We have solutions that can help reduce costs for people. And right now we need government to invest in those solutions especially for working and middle-income Canadians. Absolutely. Hey, let's keep having conversations like this because people learn things from it, from just us talking alone. And uh, we'll have Ashlyn on to congratulate her in the next couple of weeks. It's a good triumph for your party, Mike. And and, uh, I think a lot of people in Kitchener clearly pleased to see it and had her back and they think she's going to be great. Thanks for the time this morning. Hey, thanks, Greg. Anytime. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news. Today's talk. 640 Toronto. I want you to hear this from yesterday. Uh, This is Phil Verster, the Metrolink CEO. This has gone from comedy to the sublime, comedic to the sublime. Um, He was people forget this guy from Scotland was ousted from Scotland because he mismanaged what was called the Scott Rail Alliance. So they thought, let's give him a thriving opportunity in Ontario, pay him over $800,000. Here's what he said about the start time for the off-delayed Eglinton Crosstown LRT. They had every intention to predict an opening date or series or range of possible opening dates for the Eglinton Crosstown with you today. But I've decided against doing so. I know it's tempting to try and interpret what what, what I think the opening date is. I can just say to you, 
Give us some space. Let us come back to you. Can't help but laugh. Colin DeMello is our Queens Park Bureau Chief. Colin, again, this is uh, yeah, this is right out of an episode of Veep. Maybe an entire season of Veep. This guy could be working for Julia Louis-Dreyfus on that show, Colin. <laughs> well, and, and it really starts to erode any of the trust that uh, you know members of the public even have uh, with the, the Ford government and with Metrolinx at this point. Because, you know, a few months ago, a very prickly Phil Verster came out to the media and said, listen, just give us just give us a space that we need to be able to work on the project. And, and he had indicated that that space would you know, allow him to come back with regular reporting schedules and tell us exactly what was going on with the construction. And now here we are, not so long after that moment, and they're saying, you know what, we're not actually going to give you a date until you know, we, we have one closer to when it's actually going to open. I, and I think in the meantime, you're seeing a lot of residents and you're seeing a lot of individuals who uh, work along the Eglinton Crossdown LRT just looking at that thing. This, this just looks like a big scrap of metal and they're, and they're not ready to go. Uh, mm. Metrolinx always contends it's 99% ready. And it's that one last percent that's going to take years and we, we still don't know when. There's very little that the public can do, isn't there? It's frustrating. Um, if you you, you can if you could rely on go trains for trains, you can't boycott Metro Links. This isn't a restaurant or a business or a phone company, and you're like enough's enough. You need to use their services, and they know that. Like, there's not a lot of forced accountability here, is there? No, and and th- there's been a lot of finger pointing, too much finger pointing. In fact, I mean, so uh, you know, there's a consortium that's building the LRT, and the consortium really seems to hold all of the cards because the government and Metrolinx is blaming them for all of the delays. But you have to wonder. I mean, as a government of Ontario, do they not have some recourse to either you know settle this in court or force them uh, into finishing up the last? portions of the project. Now, Metrolink says that they won't run the trains unless they're sure uh, that it's going to be safe for commuters. They don't want another Ottawa LRT disaster. But it looks like the fear of repeating Ottawa LRT Mm. is holding everyone back to the point where they don't know what's going to happen. Only got a minute, and I know we'll talk about what the Liberals are going to decide tomorrow or what's already been decided uh, next week, but it's a big result for the Green Party last night. Is this bad news for the Liberal candidate got under 8%? The NDP had their support almost cut in half last night. It's bad for both those parties, that result last night, isn't it? You know, the ironic thing is the Ford government didn't uh, register at all, barely. They came in third, but... For them, they came up the winners in this because they were never going to win the riding anyway. Yeah. Uh, the Greens, a huge upset, which means they have a, a they increased their caucus in uh, the legislature by 100%. Uh, mm. The Liberals, yeah, they came in fourth, so they're going to have to do some soul-searching because they used to have the seat uh, back in 2014. But the big question is for Marit Stiles. Uh, if you look at her tweets about it, Below it are all sorts of attacks about her pinning it back to Sarah Jama, saying she needs to make amends in order to you know, repair the rift in the party. Uh, losing a seat that she had mm-hmm. is going to lead to a lot of questions about whether she can survive as leader. Yeah, and you and I know there's no way back for Sarah Jamis, so she's got to go at it uh, another route. Colin, thanks for this this morning. We're tight for time, but I appreciate you coming on. You have a great weekend. I know you'll be busy. Thanks for having me. You bet. Colin DeMello, Queen's Park Bureau Chief. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's News, Today's Talk. 640 Toronto. Yesterday we told you that the taste of the Danforth has been cancelled, and it's more than just this particular event. Um, But we want to find out if there is indeed a fighting shot for them to get funding. We told you many other festivals, many other parades in the city get serious funding. Even the federal government 
funds things like the Toronto Pride Parade. I'm not saying that they shouldn't. I'm just telling you that they do. Mary Fragedakis uh, is the Greektown BIA Executive Director, and she joins us now on Toronto Today. It's great to have you on. Thanks for the time. Good morning, Greg. How are you? I'm really good. Nobody wants, um, this is sad news. Nobody wants the taste of the Danforth not to happen. So I'll ask right out of the gate, is there still a chance it could? Look, where further discussions are taking place to better understand if we can host Taste in 2024, and, and we know that the event is an important event in the summer calendar for a lot of people who have a lot of on memories of the festival, a lot of childhood nostalgia wrapped up into it, and, and we know what it means for our businesses as well over the years. Like, this is a, a make-it-or-break-it weekend for a, a lot of um, our businesses, but at the same time, we also sustained a $257,000 loss this year with the festival, and so we would need to fundraise to secure new title sponsorship in order to be able to continue in 2024, because mm. otherwise our members uh, are facing, you know, a, a 19 to 20% increase to the levy, and many of our small business members have told us that they can't shoulder such a a significant increase, which get, is understandable. Oh, I get it. And I, I think our listeners get it as well. Uh, Mary Fragadakis, our guest, Greektown BIA Executive Director. When when you say it would be, well, I re- read accounts, it would increase levies by close to 20%. Do you have an actual dollar figure that that, that, that speaks to? No, because it differs for every single member because not everybody's property is the same size. So yeah. Some people have like a single frontage and their levy would be smaller. Some of them are double and much larger properties than on Danforth, in particular for the restaurants. Many of those are larger establishments. So, I mean, for some some larger establishments like that, you know, levy could be like eight to ten thousand dollars in a year and a 20 percent increase to that. You know, if it was hundred thousand dollars, it would be another two thousand dollars, and that's just for the levy. That doesn't speak to what taxes will be in this city. I mean, that discussion is going to happen um, at council next year in the early part mm-hmm. of the year, and that's a, that's a different discussion. But that's just the levy portion of the taxes. People have brought up, um, well, obviously the cafe T.O. patios were a contentious issue for for many restaurant owners and businesses, period, up and down the Danforth, Mary, but also bike lanes. Can you speak to that? Has have you, is there just has the juice just been not worth the squeeze to have bike lanes up and down the street for business owners? Look, I'm not going to get into the whole bike lane discussion because obviously people use them and obviously some people don't and it's a contentious issue. I mean, but they're there and they're not going away. And so, you know, we've we've accepted that they're there and they're pretty much all over the city now. I mean, what it's done, the addition of these new um, pandemic relief programs that have become permanent here in the city is that they have um, caused us as festival organizers to actually have a smaller footprint on the street. And Mm. the way we used to do the festival is obviously our revenue model is based on corporate sponsorships. And the reason we have the corporate sponsorship is so that we can keep the festival affordable for our small business members. So others pay larger amounts of money and offset the larger costs of the festival and make it affordable um, for our businesses to be able to participate and get in front of one million to one million and a half um, participants. So um, when we have 15% less use of the road, it also limits our ability to raise revenue 
It sure would. It sure would. Do, do, do you need your city councilors? Shelly Carroll's one. Do you need them to be a little louder about this? Like I, I what I saw this me saying this was uh, shrug of the shoulders going, oh, well, it's too bad. It'd be really nice to keep the festival. Can they go to the federal government? Can they go to other revenue sources and say, let's save this? Well, we got uh, money from the city in 2023. We also got money from the Ontario um, government as well through the experience. Ontario grant, listen, we are going to be putting in for, all, for grants. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. We always do, and we make best efforts. But we also know that the sponsorship market is um, a tight. tough one right yeah. now. Yeah. It's tight. It, it, it's dried up, quite frankly. And so I know, and I've heard this from other festival organizers, you know, but again, we're going to try um, and make our best efforts, but realizing, you know, that, you know, we're mm. ma- we know what the festival cost us. So we expect that it's going to cost the same or more given the cost of living and inflation. Um, but we're making a lot of assumptions. And some of those assumptions, you know, we're not sure how questionable they are given um, a lot of uncertainty because we know for one, one thing for sure, we don't, we're not in control of the economy. All right, let's stay in touch on the issue. And if there's anything we can do to help, I think it's important for the city. I know what it generates and I know what it does for tourism here as well. Thanks for the time this morning. Thank you, Greg. Uh, Mary Fragadakis joining us, Greektown BIA Executive Director. A loss of a quarter of a million dollars last year. Just for context on that front, uh, the Pride Parade was funded in Toronto. $1.5 million the federal government gave. Snap of a finger. They say they, hey, our programming, cash crunch, we need more security, and they announced a brand new pool of money. No, I'm not saying they shouldn't do that. But are we going to weigh back and forth? You want to play the game? What does pride mean to the city? A lot. What does Taste of Danforth mean to the city? Also a lot. So it shouldn't be $1.5 million to $0 from the feds. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news. Today's talk. 640 Toronto. Last night, um, a by-election win in Kitchener Centre for the Green Party, and it wasn't even close. Um, I talked to some NDP people over the weekend. They're a little worried about keeping the seat, um, but it's a stunning uh, pushback for them to lose, basically, one out of every six of their voters from the last election, which was only, what, 17 months ago. Laura Maylindo won easily again in that riding. So I, I know it's Kitchener and we're at Toronto Station, but is there a general thing going on across this province? Is that a concern for Mart Stiles, the NDP leader? And the Liberals, I would say. Uh, Kelly Stice was the candidate a second time, and she got 15% in 22 and barely 7% last night. Um, so it's a, it, there's not much of a red wave happening in uh, KW country either. Charlie Pinkerton's from uh, the Trillium, and he joins us now. It's a busy weekend in provincial politics, um, and we got a lot to get to. Charlie, it's great to have you on. Yeah, no problem. Happy to be here. What do you make of this result last night? What are your first implications about what it means for the Greens and Shriner? I just laid out the Liberals and NDP have to be reeling from how bad the results were. What do you see? Yeah, I guess uh, for the Greens, most of all, like this is obviously huge and exciting uh, for them. They're doubling their seat count. Um, but there was a number of factors at play here. Like, for example, um, the same riding federally is the one that's represented by Mike Morris, uh, a Green MP. So uh, 
the riding has been able to see him in the House of Commons, him represent them. That obviously served as a boost. Um, I've actually visited the riding uh, the uh, last Wednesday, so about eight days before voting day. It was clear that the Greens had a very, very, very solid operation there. That hundreds of volunteers had knocked on tens of thousands of doors. And so things really just, you know, came together for them there. And uh, it is a good sign for them, but... Um, certainly for the Liberals, at least, given the timing of the by-election and the fact that uh, their leadership election was overlapping it and really in its final mm-hmm. um, weeks. Uh, that sort of made things hard for them to get sort of the same uh, uh, similar quantity of volunteers out to that writing group. I, I'm glad you mentioned that because I know Bonnie Crombie did some travels and did some, you know, did some media and some appearances with Kelly Stice, who got the 7%. But whether it's talking to her, Yasser Nakvi, Nate Erskine-Smith, any of these three main candidates, they'll acknowledge and they'll sure acknowledge privately, my goodness, there's a lot of work to do for the liberals across the province. They had horrific results in areas like London, Sarnia, further north. That's why northern Ontario's put such an emphasis. There's so much work for that party to do still. Absolutely. And that's really something we've heard a lot of in the liberal leadership campaign and back-to-back elections. They haven't won any seats. And I think most of all of those areas uh, that you mentioned. Um, So that's one of their big challenges. Uh, Another is simply uh, getting their seat count up to 12. If they can do that before the next election, that would afford them more funding in the legislature. That would make things, uh, you know, a lot easier to have a better turnaround uh, than uh, they did in 2022. So yeah, it's Totally accurate assessment. We have a long way to go, no matter who comes out this weekend as leader. Charlie Pinkerton's our guest deputy editor of the Trillium. All right, you're seeing stuff from uh, the Bonnie Crombie campaign. It's an exclusive on the Trillium. What are what's Team Crombie telling you? Yeah, so um, the. What we got from the Crombie campaign, I guess I should say uh, we weren't exactly supposed to get from their campaign, but we, you know, obtained this internal document that essentially was their. Um, Uh, their data coming out of the Liberals voting weekend, which was last weekend, that was a tally of voters that uh, had gone to the polls, paired up with uh, the total members in each of those ridings where they were voting. And it was an assessment uh, of um, the likelihood that Bonnie Crombie would emerge the winner and on what ballot uh, if so and what it determined is that there is a strong likelihood that she will win this weekend she could possibly take it on the first ballot Um, there's a number of caveats of course including that if uh, these voters that they had identified as uh, Crombie voters didn't actually vote that way at the end of the day Um, so of course you know, anything could happen, but at least the Crombie campaign, from their perspective, will be feeling good going into Saturday. Uh, is there a number in your mind, um, even if there's not a first ballot win? Let's say there's not. Uh, the Crombie camp has felt, you know, really confident at times they'd be at 45 or 46 percent. That almost makes it a certainty she'd be the next leader. If she's at 39, 40 percent, I mean, the concept is she's going to be first on a lot of ballots. She's going to be last on a lot of ballots, um, not just because. The other two candidates are asking for it to be so. Is there a number you think she's in trouble if she's on the first ballot um, coming in with, with that with that particular number? Yeah, I uh, you know can't personally say I've been doing the number crunching, the deep math myself. But from everyone <laughs> I know who's much smarter than I at that uh, aspect of uh, 
of this thing. Um, you know, I hear a number like 40, 41, 42 uh, percent on the first ballot will make her a very, very strong uh contender and chance to take it overall no matter what so she has to be under 40 probably for there to be a chance just even a even a puncher's chance for one of the other candidates to to steal it on a second or third uh, ballot if you will i guess it's a puncher's chance i would still say 40 41 just at that point you know probably still uh, probably the favorite no matter what yeah. Now I'm gonna I'm gonna push on on you. Is there mm-hmm. potential for Team Crombie to have wanted this out there to to make the point um, that there's nothing they can do about the voting? So why wouldn't they release any of this polling prior to the actual vote? And that was the argument for the other sides was if they're so confident they're winning on the first ballot, they'd release data before the actual vote, and they they kind of didn't, did they? Uh, yeah, I can assure people we did not get this from the campaign officially. Right. Um, and, you know, that was something that I actually thought about uh, leading up to the vote uh, that I found quite curious because we often see these sort of planted uh, polling uh, leaks by front runners. And we didn't actually get that all the way through uh, from the Crombie campaign. It was talked about. Um, and that made me a bit skeptical in how confident they were going to the weekend. But having seen the numbers that we saw, again, there could be uh, flaws uh, due to simply how they were collected. But mm-hmm. nevertheless, it shows that they have good reason to be confident. Yep, you've got the document. Uh, you can go to the trillium.ca, find out more about it. That internal doc shows uh, Bonnie Crombie's campaign teasing that potential first ballot win. T- tomorrow could have some serious drama after some drama in Kitchener last night uh, that you laid out for us as well. Charlie, thanks so much for this. Yeah, no problem. Anytime. There's Charlie Pinkerton, deputy editor of the Trillium. Uh, and again, to reset, the Green Party win a resounding victory um, in uh, Kitchener Center last night. Uh, the NDP had that seat the last two years out, didn't end up keeping it uh, with Laura May Lindo's departure. Um, from uh, provincial politics, and the liberals had that seat for ages before that. You got to go 2003 through 2018. They won four straight elections, but it's a green seat now um, with almost 50% of the vote for Ashlyn Clancy.